Hello, this is Dr. Tyler Jean, and today we'll be mapping hypochlorhydria on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, recommendations, and outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15 Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Tyler Jean. Dr. Tyler Jean is passionate about educating others on the importance of food as medicine while inspiring them to embrace healthier lifestyles. He has just completed his fourth year of medical school to become a naturopathic doctor and will use his practice to take a more integrative and preventative approach to healthcare. This is also the approach that Tyler currently uses through his platform, At Functional Foods, which you will definitely want to check out. At Functional Foods, Tyler empowers his audience with recipes, educational info, brand recommendations, inspiration, and more. Tyler, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Andrea, thank you so much for having me. It is such a treat being here today. Oh, I, you know, I can't really believe that we're essentially neighbors and I've been stalking you and your work for years, but this is the first time that we're actually talking. So I'm super excited to have this time with you. I am so, like I said, so excited to be here and I'm such a fan of the work that you do in your podcast. And so when you reached out, I was so thrilled to, to be a part of it and to speak with your audience today. Yay, mutual fan club. And we're talking about such an important topic. This topic, so much confusion, Tyler, about stomach acid. And when it comes to stomach acid, many still tend to think through the lens of hyper, meaning overproductive, versus hypo. Where do you think we went wrong in our thinking from a clinical standpoint? Yeah, well, when you think about, you know, hypochlorhydria, which is low stomach acid, a lot of people think that hyperchlorhydria or too much stomach acid is really what is going to be causing reflux symptoms, heartburn or indigestion that many people, you know, really deal with and maybe associated with GERD, gastrointestinal right. reflux disease. But, you know, we don't actually know unless we test. And so mm. a lot of times we're treating people with proton pump inhibitors. Those are kind of the mainstays of treatment such as omeprazole. But oftentimes we don't actually know unless we were to do something like a Heidelberg test, which is considered the gold standard treatment right. uh, for assessing for hypochlorhydria. And so really it kind of comes back to some people, they get put on proton pump inhibitors and they actually don't notice any improvement in their heartburn or reflux or indigestion. Maybe they still have bloating. So could this actually be be more of a case of low stomach acid output as opposed to hypersecretion of stomach acid. Such a good point. And it leads me to a number of questions. First of all, I'm kind of curious what 
our understanding is of what causes the low stomach acid. Why is that happening? I know age is a factor, but are there other factors that you've encountered? Absolutely. And as you mentioned too, we naturally decrease the amount of stomach acid we produce as we age, which is why I, I think sarcopenia is also so common too. <gasps> and that, you know, we really need that acid to break down protein and protein being that macro group that is broken down into those basic amino acids that can help with yep. protein synthesis and maintaining muscle mass. But in terms of like, what are some of these underlying root cause factors that we like to explore in naturopathic medicine that could decrease acid production? And, you know, I think of a number of different things and some of them could be uh, related to stress, impaired vagal tone. I mean, you know, thinking about how many people deal with chronic stress today right. and that our digestive system is innervated by that vagus nerve that engenders that parasympathetic tone, that relax and rejuvenation phase. And we need to be in that parasympathetic tone in order to secure Crete, proper stomach acid and digestive enzymes and to really optimize that terrain to properly break down that food. So if we're kind of always eating on the go and we're not being really mindful when we eat, it can really hinder our production of a lot of those digestive factors that help us to break down and assimilate nutrients in food. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, we have to like think about food. We have to salivate. We have to get those secretions going. And when we're eating on the run, we're not giving that time the time for the production of those secretions. Absolutely. So just really spending more time with the food. I think that's also um, you know, important to note that we've lost touch with our food in a way in this world where we kind of pack our schedules and are so busy, we don't make a lot of time to prepare food. And, you know, we're, you're, we're eating out of convenience or, uh, you know, going through a drive through window, eating between appointments and in the car. And that really does not put us in the best state to properly digest our food. And, you know, actually being more mindful, as you mentioned, Andrea, about, you know, being mindful around our food and thinking about engaging all the senses around food and stimulating what we call cephalic digestion. So that's that pre-digestion of smelling and chewing your food and really engaging all those senses prior to ingestion of that food. Mm, and you were about to mention H. Other pylori. Factors. Yeah, Other factor. Yeah. So... H. pylori can be an, another uh, factor. It's a, a bacteria that can inhabit and infect the gastric mucosa and oftentimes is associated with um, gastric cancer and those that are susceptible. But, you know, it secretes a compound called urease, which you can measure on a urea breath test. But in a sense, it can, in a way, kind of neutralize the stomach acid and make it less acidic, which can make it harder to again, break down those proteins, uh, which you need an acidic environment to break down protein. It can also impair with um, certain micronutrient absorption, mainly B12, uh, mm -hmm. because intrinsic factor is secreted by the cells in the stomach and we need intrinsic factor in order to absorb B12. So H. pylori can really, you know, contribute to a lot of symptoms that may be experienced by people with GERD, like reflux and heartburn and indigestion and early satiety, but you know, you could do a number of ways to test this, uh, but that could be an infectious cause potentially that could be leading to lower stomach acid. And testing has come up. Honestly, my mind is going in a million directions because I want to talk about the amino acids and I want to talk about the PPIs, but testing has come up a couple times already and you noted the Heidelberg test. Are there other ways to test for stomach acid that you found to be effective even 
things people can do at home? Yeah. I mean, I will say we talked about the gold standard being the Heidelberg test. It's rather invasive. You have to basically, yeah. you know, swallow a, a vitamin sized capsule uh, with a pH paper on it to basically measure the acidity of your, you know, stomach acid. And then they give you this uh, fancy graph, we call it a gastrogram, and it will show you how much stomach acid you produce. But a lot of kind of the mainstay of kind of treating hypochlorhydria, figuring out if hypochlorhydria is an issue, is empirical treatment. Yes, you can mm -hmm. test for H. pylori. There's the urea breath test we talked about. Um, you can do a stool antigen test as well in a, in a stool test. And you can also do an endoscopy and culture that. But really the empirical treatment is to see, do people respond to a lot of these tools that we have in our toolkit and naturopathic medicine that help to just support digestion and good stomach acid production. And that can be stuff like bitters. Mm -hmm. And these are bitter compounds and herbs that you know our stomach and our tongue have bitter receptors and can help to increase production of hydrochloric acid. Dandelion root, skullcap, gentian, those are also my really favorite uh, herbs that we may use apple cider vinegar a lot of people may use kind of empirically 15 minutes before eating a meal and trying to support proper acid production and this is kind of working with the body but maybe you know your body that's not enough for the body so some people may empirically treat with betaine hcl mm -hmm. and they may do like a challenge where they'll do for a period of time one capsule with every meal maybe go up to two capsules with every meal all the way up to maybe six capsules with every meal and we're trying to see as we increase the amount of exogenous acid that they're taking in, do they get reflux like symptoms that we would typically see with too much acid? And if they don't get the symptoms of too much acid, that could indicate to us that they're not producing enough stomach acid. Because if someone's taking six you know, capsules of betaine HCL right. and they don't notice any type of reflux, that to me would suggest that there's a stomach acid issue. And maybe they actually feel better and they're digesting their food because they're adding in the stomach acid supporting things like the bitters or the betaine HCL, but also at the same time, addressing some of those underlying root causes that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, so good. And I loved all the mediators that you spoke to there. This brings me back to the question of why people with GERD or reflux are, why are they experiencing that when their acid is low, is hypo and not hyper? Because I think this is where people get confused and think they're the exception. Oh no, I have too much because I experience these things. And then the PPI actually works. So what's the functional mechanism that's happening there? So if I'm if I'm getting your question correctly, it's why would people experience indigestion and heartburn when they have too little stomach acid as opposed to Correct. too much stomach acid? Yes. Yeah. So that's a that's a really great question. What we know right now is really how important the pH of the stomach is and how that pH throughout the intestinal tract, the small intestine, the large intestine influences the intestinal activation of certain enzymes. So these enzymes, digestive enzymes, are pH sensitive. So depending on that pH of the gastric chyme, so the food that is broken down um, you know, from the stomach that goes into the small intestine, that sends various signals throughout the body that communicates with the pancreas and the stomach and again, the intestines that helps to orchestrate this optimal pH that allows those enzymes to properly work. And so mainly this is, you know, stimulation of bicarbonate from the, from the pancreas. And then this will also 
you know, influence the production of these pancreatic enzymes and their ability to actually break down that food. So what we were really seeing in why people are experiencing this is one, they're not able to properly break down that food. So it's kind of just sitting there. Yep. But when we think about GERD and like what are, you know, typically with people when they're experiencing reflux, what is the underlying factor as to why they're kind of experiencing those symptoms? I also think about slowed gastric emptying and slowed motility. And again, kind of coming back to it's not being broken down, it's kind of sitting there. And in that that impaired motility in the context of especially like decrease esophageal sphincter tone yes. uh, can contribute to those symptoms of the nausea, of the fullness and the heartburn of the reflux because it's it's sitting there and it's not moving. So again, that's where I think about motility and this motility piece, which is just as important, I believe, as the digestive piece as well. Yes. So well explained. Thank you for bringing us into that anatomy and physiology to really understand what could be happening, which I think can aid the confusion there. One of the things that I mentioned that I was really curious about. And I always like to say that we're not what we eat, we're what our body can do with what we eat, which is what you're talking about with this breakdown factor. And so much is reliant on the stomach. And I noticed that a lot of people move to things like amino acid therapy, but I always want to back it up and say, A, are you eating enough protein? B, can your body break down that protein? So what are your thoughts on how people are consuming protein and how you back it up in that way to make sure that we're eating the right foods, but that at the stomach level, at the acidic level, we're able to utilize the proteins and particularly amino acids that we consume. Yes. So many great points you brought up, Andrea. And, you know, I think it's twofold kind of thinking about how can we support the individual? And if they do have a hard time actually breaking down protein, giving the body some support, and that could be with amino acids, but also thinking about, you know, the absorption piece. Why would somebody have impaired absorption, you know, in the first place? One, can they break it down, as you mentioned? Two, can they absorb it? And then the assimilation piece. But also at the same time, while we're supporting the individual to help with maybe symptomatic relief, I'm always thinking about what are those underlying root factors that are muddying the waters that we have to clear to help to improve that overall terrain so that the body can better absorb those nutrients. So some of these things that I think about, yes, we can do the amino acid therapy, but again, is there H. pylori present? And let's test for that. Yes. Could there be underlying small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, also known as SIBO, which can damage the brush border, the, the lining of the gastrointestinal mucosa or the small intestine that is responsible for that second phase of digestion after we break down those macronutrients into smaller micronutrients, it further gets cleaved and it's absorbed across that brush border. And SIBO is so prevalent because again, there's a motility disorder, which we talked about as well. And that's a big risk factor when it comes to SIBO. If you have inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's, colitis, maybe you have colorectal cancer or unhealed celiac, this chronic persistent inflammation in the colon can also impede and impair nutrient absorption. So we have to address the inflammation and we have to consider the whole context of, you know, the, the intestinal lining and why that person may not be able to absorb those nutrients in the first place. And then the last piece I wanted to talk about was just the medications yeah. and PPIs being so common, being one yes. of the most common medications that are prescribed and why we see so many nutrient deficiencies with PPIs because again, the acid needed to activate those enzymes for digestion, 
but also, again, damage to that brush border and seeing, you know, micronutrient deficiencies in calcium and zinc and B12, folate, magnesium, and even iron, iron deficiency anemia is rampant. Say, so, yep. you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's, you know, I know you talk about this functional nutrition matrix. You have to really look at it from kind of how you can help with symptomatic relief and improve absorption, you know, kind of temporarily but always keeping in the back of your mind, what are those underlying factors and antecedents that need to be addressed to improve absorption in the first place? So brilliantly said. And I think, you know, everything you're talking about, Tyler, brings us back to the upper part of the digestive system, which I think gets to, is too ignored in all of the conditions that you spoke about. I think we focus a lot in naturopathic medicine and functional medicine and functional nutrition on the lower part of the digestive system. And we have to take in to account everything from that thinking about food that slowed down the vagus nerve, the chewing, the stomach acid, and the breakdown, which if not functional, are going to cause more problems downstream in the digestive system. Absolutely. And you know, it's not really a sexy topic to talk about. And I think we take right. for granted that we can just slam down a meal and we, you know, our body takes care of it itself. And that, you know, we have this built-in machinery for our body to break down food and synthesize it and utilize it for energy, but just recognizing that certain people have different holes in the system and different weak points. And, you know, I can't say I, I take a very integrative gastroenterology approach in my work and how many people come in with some type of digestive complaint, even if they're coming in for not even a digestion related complaint, there's always gut issues that I'm seeing. And, you know, thinking about, you know, the type of food that someone's eating, again, looking at their autonomic nervous system function and thinking about stress, but always thinking about, um, just, you know, underlying stealth infections too, that I think can be a big issue that are often overlooked. Yeah. Yeah. And we really need to think about the entire matrix as you've pointed out, and also think, like you said, about mental health issues, about immune issues. It all comes back to digestive top to bottom, the function of the digestive system top to bottom. So you talked about some of the interventions, some of the mediators, the bitters, the dandelion, the ACV, the betaine HCL, if we go that route. If we're looking at the right side of the matrix, is there anything else we can be doing obviously relaxation and vagal nerve stimulation, anything else we could be doing in that sort of skills arena that can help with our acid production, our appropriate acid production, um, especially if we're in a therapeutic stage of healing? Yeah. And I love that you term that as a therapeutic stage of healing. You did allude to one of them in particular, and that's really just the aspect of mindful eating and being present and thoroughly masticating your food, chewing 20 times, maybe, you know, taking a couple deep diaphragmatic breaths before a meal or practicing grace or prayer, eating in the presence of another person. Um, mm. I think food is one of these uniting factors that really brings a lot of community. And I think that's also what's tough too, being in the naturopathic and functional medicine space. And, and probably for you too, Andrea, uh, being in functional nutrition, that there can be a lot of dogma around food and don't yes. eat this, eat that. This is bad. This is good. This is inflammatory. This is anti-inflammatory. But there's a big component to food too that I think unites all of us. And I think it's, we oftentimes forget about that. And I think that's so, so, so important. And engaging in that can also be as therapeutic as well. And, you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction techniques was another thing that I was thinking about. And, you know, anything that's going to help to engender more uh, parasympathetic tone and get us out of that fight or flight, you know, sympathetic arousal that many of us live in that are very busy, 
you know, that's only going to help facilitate and improve our digestive process so we get a lot more out of each meal. Mm, so well said. Once again, I look forward to hanging out with you again sometime soon, Tyler, hopefully in person where we can enjoy uh, a meal together without any dogma and with plenty of stomach acid and keep our conversations going. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Andrea. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified by email each week about our podcast releases, head on over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please feel free to get in touch with us. We would love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. 